Let us reopen our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in a way, by the grace of God, we are members of a secret society. By a secret society, we mean one that the world does not know about. And it is the kingdom of Jesus Christ throughout the earth. The princes of this world knew nothing about our Lord, and they know nothing about us. And we can call it a secret society because they don't recognize us. In 1 Corinthians 2.15, we had the words, And yet he is judged of no man. A spiritual man is able to judge all things that is taught by the Word of God and taught by the men of God through the Spirit of God. And yet the world cannot judge or discern that they are the children of God. And the Bible tells us that in 1 John chapter 3, it says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Here in 1 Corinthians 2, the Bible tells us that the princes of this world would not have touched the Lord Jesus Christ if they had known that He was the Lord of glory. They don't know us. I've made this point before. If the world knew who we are and the important role that we play in this world, paparazzi would be all around this building because they would want to get pictures of us. They would want to touch us. They would want to hear words from us because we're the sons of God. The whole universe is moving toward the manifestation of the sons of God. The planets in their orbits, the angels, all men, all creatures... The whole earth is groaning in in pain and travail until now, according to Romans chapter 8, waiting for the adoption of our bodies for the resurrection day in which we will be declared to the universe as the sons of God. That's what the Bible tells us. The whole universe is a play, it's a drama for the glory of God by rescuing sinners according to His own sovereign will and the good pleasure of His counsel and to declare us His children. He then sends us the written revelation of Himself that the world cannot read and understand. They reject it. They hate it. They despise it. They mock it. But it reveals that we are the sons of God, that He is our Father, all that He has done for us and all that He is yet to do for us. In 1 Corinthians 2, we had in verse 9 these words. As it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, The things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. They are spiritually discerned things. And the world does not understand them at all. Because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. What things are we talking about? Think for a moment with me. Man's eyes, whether by microscope or telescope, cannot see the things God has prepared for us. His ears have never heard about it. No matter how wild the tale, his heart has never imagined it. And here are a few of them. We're talking about eternal life. A virgin birth. Heaven. Justification by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Mansions in glory. Adoption as the sons of God. Deliverance from the coming destruction of the world. The resurrection of the dead. Being indwelt by the Spirit of God. That our brother sits on the throne of David at God's right hand. 
that God visited earth 2,000 years ago in Jesus of Nazareth. That our names are in the book of life. That God regenerates some men and their hearts. That we will have glorified immortal bodies someday. That Gentiles have been grafted into the Israel of God. That there is a marriage supper of the Lamb coming. That there is such a thing as everlasting righteousness and peace. Of inheriting God. Of the second Adam as our representative. Of everlasting love. Of a high priest in God's presence. And countless other things the world knows nothing about. There's not a book sold in the bookstore that talks about those things at any of your college bookstores that you go to. These things are in the Bible for us. And brethren, they don't know the simple thing about the book of life. The whole human race depends upon their name being found in the Lamb's book of life. But they don't even know about the book. We know about the book because it's written about in another book. Our Bibles. And what we are dealing with in, in this study at this time, as we look into the Word of God to learn what the Lord can teach us, is that God has blinded the vast majority of the human race to be ignorant of these things due to the blindness that is in them. And yet, He has revealed it to us by His Spirit and through His Word. And we want to rejoice in that. It told us in verse 8, of 1 Corinthians 2, that none of the princes of this world knew. Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas, Annas, the high priests at that time, they did not recognize the Lord Jesus Christ, though He had done so much in their presence. None of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Because their nation was severely judged and wiped out. Jerusalem was leveled and plowed like a farmer's field by the Roman armies in 70 A.D. for not having known the time of their visitation. But we know about the Lord Jesus Christ. We know Him. Think about, they did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? Do you know who His Father was? Which one? We know He had a legal father. We know He had a real father. Do you know His mother's name? Do you know where he was born? Do you know where he grew up? Do you know the names of his brothers and sisters? Do you know what he could do at the age of 12? Do you know what his ministry was like? Do you know what he preached? Do you know his death, his dying words? Do you know how long he was in the grave? And do you know whose grave he was buried in? Do you know when he rose from the dead? And how long was he here on earth before he went back to heaven? Do you know who saw him while he was here on earth for 40 days? When he went back to heaven, what did they sing to him? What kind of a throne did he sit down on? Do you know all those things about the Lord of glory? It's in the Word of God. Jesus told the Jews, Search the Scriptures. In them ye think ye have eternal life. But they are they which testify of me. The the Bible is a written record of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Catholics today will open their great big pulpit Bibles and do this. They'll kiss the book. The Jews would wear it on their foreheads. The Jews would wear it on their arms. But they didn't know the Son of God that it declared to them. I hope that we do more than kiss the Bible or leave it sit on our nightstands or coffee tables. But that we read it, memorize it, meditate on it, rejoice in the things that it tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brethren, I want to quickly race through a few points that we want to learn. The Bible that we hold is a special book. It is a book in code. It is an esoteric book. It is encrypted. 
Do you get emails or sometimes are you ever in a website where it says that the information that's about to transfer back and forth is encrypted? This is an encrypted book. It's been encrypted so that the world cannot understand it or figure it out. And it's been encrypted so that we can easily figure it out by His Spirit. This book is for His children. It's a secret book for a secret cult of God worshipers. Worshippers of Jesus Christ. What is a cult? A cult is a select group of people that worship the same thing. It's often used as a slur term against the church of Jesus Christ, but forget how they use it. That's just because they're not intelligent enough to think up a new word. They just use a slur word called cult. But we are the sect of the Nazarenes. We follow the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Paul was accused of being a ringleader of that sect. We have a book that they cannot understand. They read through its pages and they tell us it's the greatest piece of English literature ever written. It's the number one bestseller of all time. And yet they do not know what it tells them. And yet we're able to turn these pages and learn so much. And I just want to bless your heart for a few minutes and then exhort you and warn you about the care we ought to give to the Bible. I want to ask a question and answer it. Is the Bible confusing? I have spent five sermons showing you that God confuses men for His greater glory and honor and the profit of His people. He confused them at the Tower of Babel and He's confusing them now. They sit in their think tanks and they dream up evolution. They dream up Big Bang theories. He is confusing and confounding men. He did it when Jesus was on earth. Jesus spoke in parables to keep the people from understanding what he was teaching. But he would reveal the truth of those parables to his disciples later. Right. Is the Bible confusing? Listen to it. Second Peter chapter 3. And I do want you to turn there now. Second Peter chapter 3. And we need to learn about the nature of the book that God has given his people. The Bible isn't a book to the world. The Bible is a book to his people. The Bible was written and addressed to churches. If I go to the book of Romans, it says the saints that are in Rome. It wasn't ever handed out at the malls in Rome. It was given to the saints in Rome. Second right. Peter chapter 3, Peter is speaking about the writings of Paul. Verse 15 of Second Peter 3. An account... Take into consideration that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation... Even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. The Apostle Paul says, that the unlearned and the unstable, men who do not come to the Bible by God's means, end up destroying themselves in God's Word. Remember what I've taught you over the last five weeks is God has written so many verses for a man to hang himself if he doesn't come to the Word of God the right way. Because no one else deserves the wisdom of this book except God's children. And the rest, if they want to try to enter this book, are going to find it a closed book and they're going to find rope to hang themselves. Peter said, Paul wrote, things hard to be understood that unlearned and unstable men wrestle with to their own destruction. They get in trouble with those passages of Scripture. What a warning to us. Let me chase a short little rabbit here. It says, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. Peter wrote this. 
55, 60, 65 A.D., but he's already referring to Paul's epistles. Go, go to your Wikipedia on a Google search and find out that the Catholic Church lays claim to having put together the New Testament Scriptures in 400 A.D. They're 340 years late. The apostles already had them. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 quotes Luke and calls it Scripture. Luke chapter 10. Here's Peter referring to Paul's epistles. I don't care what Wikipedia says. I don't care what the Roman Catholic Church says. I know that when tongues disappeared, something perfect had arrived. And I know that tongues were for a 40-year period of time, so that I know that by 70 A.D., the Scriptures had come together because the Bible says so. Many, Many Christians... Many claim to use the Bible for their faith and practice, but they end up in all sorts of differences. Think about baptism for a minute. Baptism, one of the simplest subjects, and I use it all the time because it's a great learning place. Baptism. Do Christians agree on the mode? The mode is how we baptize. Some sprinkle, some pour, and some immerse. The majority sprinkles and pours. A very small minority immerses. Some believe to do it to babies. Where'd they get that idea? The majority do it to babies. The small minority do it to those who have an active conscience, something older than a baby. What about the result? The purpose of baptism. The majority teaches that baptism saves. The small minority teaches it doesn't save at all in a a real or legal way. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God of one who's already saved. Why the difference from the same book? Because God has put difficulties for them there to hang themselves with. What about salvation? Is the majority of those that call themselves Christian on earth sacramentalists? The seven sacraments of the Church of Rome? Are the majority of Baptist Arminians? Are there some fatalists? And then the truth has to steer between these these various ditches. How about prophecy? Is there preterism? Everything was fulfilled in 70 AD. Is there futurism? Everything is still in the future. Is there historicism where we drive between the two ditches? Why is there so much confusion coming from the same book? How about verses of the Bible? This is my body, which is broken for you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Has that little verse caused any problems? The Catholics take it literally. That there's no figure of speech there, and so the cracker becomes their God. The Lutherans take it a different way by seeing a figure of speech there. That the cracker doesn't stop being a cracker, it just takes on the nature of God as well as the cracker. The Presbyterians don't want to go as far as the Lutherans, so they believe that when you take the communion bread, you are taking Jesus Christ really and spiritually. And then Baptists come along and say that's just a metaphor. The bread just represents the Lord Jesus Christ in his torn body. Four different views, all claiming the Bible from one little verse. This is my body. You want to go into the Bible and be a literalist, literalist, you're going to hang yourself. Jesus also said, I am the door. Were his hinges brass, silver, aluminum, steel? What was his knob? Did he have a deadbolt? 
Why is the Bible confusing? The answer to the question is yes, it is. The Bible contains many dark sayings. What are Proverbs called? We write a commentary on Proverbs every day and send it out through the website. What are they called in verse five, verses 5 and 6? They are called dark, dark sayings. They're called dark sayings. Why would God put dark sayings in the Bible? Because He wants you to have to work for the truth a little bit. Does that make sense to you? He wants you to have to work a little bit for it. And He wants you to be able to go in and find the truth and others to go in there and not be able to find it. So He wrote them in dark sayings. Look at Matthew 13. For that point that we know well, but we need to remember... And that we need to have it ready as an answer for those that ask why we believe what we believe. And that is why Jesus spoke in parables. A parable is an extended proverb. A parable is a long simile or metaphor. An extended one. It's a story that you are to learn a lesson from, not by looking at its literal terms, but by drawing from it a comparison to something in life. The Christian world teaches that parables are earthly stories to convey heavenly meaning so that even simple people in the pews or the Sunday school classes can learn the truth of God's Word. Let me repeat that. I've heard that this is how what they teach about a parable. A parable is an earthly story that Jesus used to convey a heavenly lesson so that simple people could understand the truth of God's Word. Here's what Jesus said when he was asked why he spoke in parables. And the reason he was asked why he spoke in parables is because parables are hard to understand. Matthew 13, verse 10, the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. How about verses 44 and 45? No, that's not the verses I want. 34 and 35 of the same chapter. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken with a prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, is a secret society of God's children on earth that the world does not recognize. The world cannot receive nor understand the body of truth that we believe. They can read our holy book, but they can't get anything out of it because God has written our holy book in such a way that we are the only ones that can figure it out by the grace of the Spirit of God and by approaching it according to the rules that He teaches within it. And you should rejoice in that, that you hold in your laps right now something very special. And that is a written revelation of God to you about things that He has prepared for them that love Him that the eyes of men and the ears of men and the heart of man has never imagined that things are so great. And they're revealed to us by words that the Spirit of God has chosen. And those words are confusing to men sometimes. Why did the Lord put seven verses in the Bible that surely sound like baptism saves us? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Acts 2.38, the men on the day of Pentecost said, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The church of Christ is so confident with Acts 2.38 that their little children are known to say, give me an Acts and 2.38 and I'll whip any Baptist preacher in the world. 
There's two of them. Except a man be born of water. John 3, 5. Acts 22 and verse 6. Ananias said to Saul of Tarsus, Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. I'm starting to wonder myself. There's, there's seven verses like that that make it sound like baptism saves. But if you read the whole New Testament, you have verses that tell you what baptism doesn't do in its salvation and what it does do in its salvation. It's a practical salvation, but not a legal salvation, not a vital salvation, not an eternal salvation. And so we have to study the whole Bible. And you know what? The Bible tells us to do that. It says, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. We already read that when I started this assembly a few minutes ago from 2 Peter 1.20. Knowing this first. First rule of Bible study. No prophecy, no verse of the Bible is of a private, a separate, individual, or alone interpretation. Every verse must, mit, must match and fit with everything else taught in the Bible. But do you know how many people have the willingness and the diligence to read and study the whole Bible to figure out one verse? Few. Few. And let's thank God for those that have come before us that were willing to do that. Baptism doesn't save except a figurative, practical salvation that is related to this life and our fellowship with God because it's the vehicle by which we get to answer God for what Jesus Christ did for us that was our real salvation. I mean, our legal salvation, our vital salvation. Why does the Bible have those verses in it, though? If you want to come up and kiss St. Peter's big toe, who's the first one that came up with the idea that baptism saves, if you even want to get near St. Peter, and by St. Peter I mean the popes of Rome, even though Peter never went to Rome, there's no record of him ever being in Rome, and if he did go to Rome, he was a happily married man on an anniversary trip, because the Bible says he was married. And Jesus healed his wife's mother from sickness in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul said, can I have a wife like Peter has one? So he wasn't much of a pope, but for those churches that have wanted to get near the Catholic Church and be approved by the Catholic Church and be friendly with the Catholic Church, those churches who are obligated to realize they came out of the Catholic Church in the Reformation, they end up following in Rome's baptismal errors from one little false assumption that baptism saves. As soon as you believe that baptism saves, then you better baptize babies, because what if a baby dies before it gets baptized? you got to get them fast. I've told you how fast the Catholics get them. They get them before they're born, but that's a subject for another time. I've told you about their intrauterine devices of baptizing babies. As soon as you believe that baptism saves and you don't have enough water to get a person buried in the water, then you'll figure out a different way of applying water like sprinkling or pouring. All from one false assumption because you wanted to get cozy with Rome. We want to get cozy with the Word of God. Amen. We want to love every Word of God and, and hold to it. Why are there about nine verses in the Bible? There's more than that. I'm, I'm being nice. Why are there at least nine verses in the Bible that say we can lose our salvation? Though we can't. Why does He say you can fall from grace in Galatians 5.4? Why did Paul put those words in there that you can fall from grace? Because there goes the church of Christ again telling you that if you haven't confessed all your sins at the moment of your death, if there's one unconfessed, bye-bye. You're going down. 
when Jesus Christ said that he would lose none of them, no one's going to be lost from the grace of God and salvation. Amen. What, does, what does Galatians 5, 4 mean? It means that you have fallen from the proper understanding of grace. Paul was writing to the Galatians saying, if you add circumcision or any works of the law to the, work of, the finished work of Christ, you're fallen from grace and you've made Christ of none effect in your heads, in your doctrine, in your faith. Not that they've undone the work of Christ on the cross. They've undone the place of Christ in their theology. You've fallen from grace. But why did he write it that way? Did the Lord have enough omniscience to know that the church of Christ would get hung up on Galatians 5-4? The beautiful thing is, he did. And that is why, that is why we love Matthew 11 that we started with this morning. Jesus said, as he recognized The Pharisees and the scribes were not believing his message, but the prostitutes and the publicans were. He thanked his father. O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank thee that thou hast hid, hid. I thank thee that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. It It has been good in the sight of God to help us Poor, despised nothings in the church of Greenville to believe the things that we do from the Bible. It is purely by grace. Otherwise, we wouldn't see a thing. We'd be as blind as any. It's all of grace. Did God know that the Mormons would stumble over 1 Corinthians 15, 29 in baptism for the dead? Why did he put that text in the Bible? Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not, why are they then baptized for the dead? 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Did he know that the Mormons were going to run off and build underground baptistries for you to be baptized for your dead relatives that never got to meet Joseph Smith? Did he know they were going to do that? Yes. We thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth. That those men who want to follow a man named Joseph Smith and then a man named Brigham Young and go to the promised land called the deserts of Utah, that you would give them verses in their Bible by which they could hang themselves. We are not better than them, O Lord, if it weren't for your grace. But by your grace, we will exalt your word and thank thee for blinding them and opening our eyes. Because it's all of grace. Did he know that? Did he know that William Miller was going to go into Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 and find a prophecy of 2,300 days, turn it into a prophecy of 2,300 years, connect it to a starting point in Daniel chapter 9 of 456 B.C. and end up with Jesus coming again in 1844 A.D.? Did God know that? The way he wrote Daniel 8.14. And so we have the Seventh-day Adventists this day because of William Miller sitting in his closet with the Bible and coming up with an interpretation that was definitely private. It was his own. No one had ever heard of it. No one has believed it since except those that follow him. And a whole denomination now runs after William Miller's forecast. Except they had to alter it. Jesus did come. You just didn't see him because Jesus entered into the investigative judgment. That's a principal doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist church, all from Daniel 8.14, one verse of the Bible. And I've taught you that verse before, and I've shown you the pictures of William Miller, and I've shown you Daniel chapter 8, that it's just a prophecy about six and a half years of which Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the Greek rulers, was going to desecrate the temple of God in Jerusalem. It's all simple. It says that. 
It, it's so plain there. But why did he write it that way, knowing what was going to happen? Did the Catholics get all worked up and trip over John 6 where it says, Except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye have no life in you? Have you ever talked to a Catholic about that? For our visitors, a man saved out of Rome who has a Roman family, and, and a, a large Roman family, and he's, he's been around the, the mulberry bush a few times with them. John 6, except ye eat the flesh of God and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Does that sound like eternal life comes by drinking the blood of Jesus? Does he tell us in that passage what he means? He means to believe on, to believe and obey his gospel. And he tells us in the passage. His, his, his apostles came to him and said, don't you know this was a hard saying? <laughs> yes, it was a hard saying. And he gave them another one. He said, he said, if you think that's hard, what do you think I've meant by the two times I've said, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him? Right. Why do you think I said that? Of course it's a hard saying. He said, let me give you another one. What if the Son of Man were to ascend up where he was before right now? Would you believe it? If Jesus were to have levitated right up into heaven, would they have believed it? Only by the Spirit of God. Because Jesus also said if a man were to come back from the dead, they wouldn't believe on him. That is how blind we are by nature, and that is, that is why it is so wonderful that we see. The point that I want to make is, it is so wonderful that we see. Amen. That's why 2 Thessalonians 2.13 is something that should dictate our lives. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Right. It is a huge, wonderful, fantastic blessing. Are there contradictions in the Bible? Can you read in one place that Ahaziah became king of Judah at the age of 42? Go to another place and read that Ahaziah became king of Judah at the age of 22. Are those both in the Bible? Yes, they are. What are they there for? <laughs> now, we're getting, now we're getting exciting. We're there for this. Somebody wants to go into God's Word and say, I don't believe the Bible because it's got contradictions in it. Do you know what he's going to be able to find? Contradictions. You go into God's Word and say there's no contradiction in here except in my mind. God's Word is true and every word of it is true. And the only reason it appears to be a contradiction to me is because I don't see as well as God does. And if you go into it that way, all of a sudden, and there's a 15-page there's a document that we have on our website about Ahaziah. The difference between 42 years in the kingdom of Omri and his 22 years of biological age, when you, you, can, you can find that in the Bible very simply, was to point out that Ahaziah and his son and his son's sons were cut out of the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ because in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 8, there are three kings missing in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And if you can't figure out the contradiction in the Old Testament, you won't know the explanation for the three kings missing. But once you figure it out, you've got the answer to both. It's wisdom. It's hidden wisdom. It's secret wisdom. But if you come to the Bible haughty and say there was a fly that landed on the scri in the scribe's inkwell, barely struggled to the surface, fell onto the paper, crawled from one, from one little marking to another, and when it dragged its butt, it changed it from a 2 to a 4, so it's 22 in one place and 42 in another place, and yes, they say that. Stuff like that. A scribal error, a fly in the ointment, you know, from Ecclesiastes 10.1. But if you go into the Bible saying, Lord, 
I'm a little child, and your word is great. David said, thy, thy word is exceeding broad, and it's the end of all perfection. I've seen an end of all perfection, but thy word is exceeding broad. If we go with that attitude, and if we go with the attitude of Psalm 131, I will not exercise myself in matters too haughty, too high for me. Oh, Lord, save me. I am not haughty. Show me. I'm like Solomon. I'm a little child. Show me. I believe 22 and I believe 42. Show me how they fit. And you know, we've had fathers that have gone before us. They knew how they fit. They knew how they fit. But you give me some seminary trained guy who's piled it higher and deeper. He does not know how God's word fits because he wants to sit in judgment on God's word in order to guarantee tenure at his university. Because if the if the students could figure out God's word, they wouldn't need him to tell them that he needs to tell them which of the two is correct. I love God's word just the way it is. Are there, some, are, there some, are there some tough passages in God's Word? To, oh, yes. Do you know what that means? Get down and pray some more. That's not a bad thing. That's a very good thing. Is the Bible confusing? Does the devil know how to quote the Bible? Who did he quote it to? Jesus. Did Jesus say you misquoted it? Did Jesus say you quoted it from the wrong version? Did he quote it perfectly? Yes. Did he apply it perfectly? No. Did he take it out of its context? Yes. Did he look at anywhere else in the Old Testament in order to limit what it could mean? No. Who did that? The Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what I'm talking about? Satan took Jesus to a pinnacle of the temple. Jesus, Psalm 91 says that God will give his angels charge over you so that if you were to fall, they'll, protect, they'll lift you up so that you won't dash your foot against a stone. Jump off. Let's see if you're really the son of God. Jesus, practicing proper Bible interpretation, says, but it's also written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So that means if I can get down from this pinnacle of the temple by another way, If I can take the fire escapes and come down the stairway and get back on the street, why should I jump off? Why should I jump off for you? Why should I jump off to presume on God's word if I've got other ways to come down? Because the Bible says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So see, the devil himself will take a verse out of context, misapply it, and corrupt doctrine. But we are to study all of God's word so that we know it says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So we do not presume on promises of God. When the Bible says that he'll provide our daily bread, that doesn't mean we sit around waiting for the bread to appear. We go to work. Because it also tells us to be diligent in our business. Could God write a plainer and simpler Bible? Oh, yes. He has infinite foreknowledge to know which verses would be misunderstood, why they would be misunderstood, how they would be misunderstood, and what changes would make them understandable. Our God is easily easily able to figure those things out. He has the infinite power to enable men to write with the plainest use of language, as he proves in the Bible. He can put things in the fewest words possible. Aren't some of the statements in the Bible absolutely condensed right down to the meat without any wasted words? The Bible is a very concise book, very direct. It's not wordy. When it's wordy, you can know by the Spirit of God that you're getting repetition for the sake of emphasis, and you ought to pay attention to it. 
When Psalm 136 says in the second clause of every verse, for his mercy endureth forever, you better get a lesson out of Psalm 136. His mercy endureth forever. That's why the repetition is there for your benefit. Does he know the difference between dark speeches and plain speaking? Look at John 16 and see if the Lord Jesus Christ knows the difference before he inspired his apostles to write the New Testament. John chapter 16. John 16:25 Jesus said, "These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs." Proverb is what? According to Proverbs chapter 1, a dark saying. "These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father." So Jesus knew when he was speaking in Proverbs and when he was speaking plainly. Look at verse 29, same chapter. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. A proverb is difficult speech. Plainly speaking is not proverbial speaking. Proverbial language is difficult to figure out exactly what the lesson is. I mean, let's see. The blueness of a wound cleanseth away evil. Um, What's the rest of that text? Somebody can quote it and shame me if they want to. The blueness of a wound cleanseth away evil, so do stripes the inward parts of the belly. Proverbs 20 and verse 30. The blueness of a wound cleanseth away evil, so do stripes the inward parts of the belly. Now, DSS is not going to like my interpretation. That's the Department of Social Services. But do you know what I've read that before? I've read that if you've got a six-pack, you are really in good health. Stripes the inward parts of the belly. Can you believe that? Do you think Solomon is telling anybody to be doing their sit-ups at night and crunches so that they can have a six-pack? Because if you've got a six-pack, then your inside organs are going to be in better health. I... Now, that may get attention of youth in various places, but what does it mean? The blueness of a wound cleanseth away evil. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. That's another proverb, isn't it? Can you really get your children out of hell and get their names in the book of life by beating them with the rod? No, because that's a proverb as well. How am I, I guess defining myself by proverbs isn't going to get us very far. The blueness of a wound cleanseth away evil. There's, a, there's one way to get evil, and evil intentions and evil actions out of a fool. And it's to beat them. And if you beat a fool, what kind of a marks is it going to leave? What color do you think they're going to be? Blue. Black and blue. Cleanseth away evil. And so do stripes. The inward parts of the belly. What kind of stripes? Stripes on the back by a chastening rod. That can make a person better. That can heal them. That can save them. That can take evil out of their lives. Proverbs 20 and verse 30. You know there's a whole commentary written on it, explaining it and showing other cross-references, but there it is. That's a proverb. It's difficult to understand. You've got to look at it very carefully, turn it every, every way, look at the rest of Scripture, And by the grace of God, figure out what it's teaching and the lesson of wisdom that is in Proverbs 20 and verse 30. Jesus knows the difference between proverbial speech and plain speech. And John 16 tells us he knows the difference. But why would he write some of the Bible in Proverbs? Why would he even do it to his disciples when they said stop? Because he wants us to work a little bit. And he tells us to work a little bit. In Proverbs chapter 2, he says, If you want to learn wisdom and learn knowledge and gather discretion and understanding, then you will hunt for wisdom as a man hunts for hid treasure. Right. 
There's nine verses in Proverbs chapter 2 that tell us to pray for it, to hunt for it, to study for it. And it's just listed there. And if you'll do those things, God will reveal things to you from his word. He hasn't made it like a child's primer. He wants, it says, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman, workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You should love reading and studying this book. What a wonderful book. Why is it hard to understand? Because God wrote it in such a way to conceal truth. We sing the song, Break Thou the Bread of Life. We sang it today. The woman said, The truth concealed in thy word and revealed in thy word. The same book conceals and reveals truth, depending on who's reading it and how they're reading it. God will not play with hypocrites. Do you remember what we've learned over the last five sermons? And that is, if you go to a prophet of God with an idol in your heart, God is going to deceive that prophet. And then you'll be deceived. Ezekiel 14, about the first 15 verses, teach that. What should we do? If the Lord can and does blind men for His truth and for His glory, then we should glorify Him and leave off our sins. If what we've learned over the last few weeks, it should tell us this. If God blinds men, we better humble ourselves before Him and break off our sins so that He will not blind us. He is able to blind the doctors of the law in, in, in Judea so they could not recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. He can certainly blind us. We should tremble before such a great and dreadful God who owns the deceived and the deceiver from the book of Job. We should tremble before his word. Do you know Isaiah 66 and verse 2 says that God will come and reveal himself to the man who trembles at his word. Amen. Do you tremble before this word? Do you love its every precept? Do you delight in it? Do you tremble at what it declares? Do you want to learn what God has to reveal to you from it? Don't come to this book with a haughty attitude or the Lord can blind you so easily and blind me so easily. We should thank Him for every bit of it that He's shown us. Every bit of it. Jacob said, I am not worthy the least of all the mercies and of all the truth that you have shown me. Pray, we need to pray for it. You need to pray for me and I need to pray for you. But you need to pray for me. That the Lord will open it to us. We need the spirit of illumination from Ephesians chapter 1. David said, Lord, open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Without that prayer, that prayer that we had today in Psalm 25, show me thy ways. Lord, teach me thy paths. If we don't come and approach his word that way, it'll be a closed book to us. We need to search it. Search the scriptures. These were more noble in, than those in Thessalonica in that they searched the Scriptures daily, we read. Right. We want to have a holy motive in studying. What do you want to study the Word of God for? So that you can perform Apache evangelism on Arminians? Or do you want to study the Word of God so that you can learn about God Himself? Remember what he says, that the noble motive is in Jeremiah 9, that you know me. That I, that I exercise loving kindness and judgment and mercy in the earth. In these things I delight, saith the Lord. We want to learn about His character and the way He conducts Himself and the way He thinks so that we can have the mind of Christ ourselves through His Word. And we want to obey what we find. Brethren, here's what Jesus said in John 7, 17. We want to obey what we find. If any man will do His will, John 7, 17, if any man will do His will, Jesus speaking, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. 
True knowledge and true wisdom and true understanding in God's Word, by His Spirit, all of it comes from obedience. The man who doesn't obey, the Holy Spirit is grieved and quenched. He doesn't give you the power of illumination. If you disobey the Word of God, God's going to close the book to you. And so Jesus taught, if any man, John 7, 17, if any man will do his will, God's will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Brethren, we need to love the truth. We need to turn away from fables wherever we can. The Bible tells us that contemporary Christianity of our generation, they have turned their ears away from the truth unto fables. We want to reject all fables and turn it to the truth. We want to make sure that our church emphasizes the three-word job description God gave Timothy. Preach the Word. We don't want to ever settle for entertainment or anything that even smacks of entertainment. We want the Word of God taught to us. Hypocrisy will destroy us. And we can never be haughty about what God's shown us. Do you remember what Romans chapter 11 tells the Gentiles? They were grafted into the tree that had once borne the Israelite nation. Some of those branches were cut off and the Gentiles were grafted in. But Paul warned them and said, Be not high-minded. Be not high-minded. But fear. Because if God cut the natural branches off, it's going to be a whole lot easier to cut you Gentiles off. That's the warning of Romans chapter 11. So we want to come to the Word of God very carefully. We're never going to apologize for the truth. We're never going to apologize for the great book we have in the Bible. We're never going to apologize for the fact that we thank God He's hidden these things from the wise and prudent because if it was good enough for Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, it's good enough for us to follow in His footsteps. But we're going to be thankful and we're going to be humble. We want to be like those in Nehemiah chapter 8 that held that great celebration because they understood the words that were read and preached to them by Ezra and his fellow Levites. Do you remember that passage? And we want to be like that. Despise not prophesying. That's a short verse. Do you understand it? 1 Thessalonians 5.20 Despise not prophesying. When God reveals something through His preacher, don't resent preaching. Don't resent sermons. I wish I was a better speaker. But when you sit there, do not despise it. 1 Thessalonians 5.20 is a warning. When God is revealing something and He's chosen to reveal it through preaching, through earthen vessels... And the foolishness of preaching the cross of Christ, don't despise it. Pray for it. Participate in it. Focus on it. Take as much as you can. But don't despise it. If we despise it, God's going to blind us to His Word. Let me close with this point. Ye were sometimes darkness. But now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We were Gentiles, brethren. What did our ancestors worship? Every conceivable thing imaginable under the sun. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd be as ignorant as anyone on this planet. It is purely by God's grace. Paul wrote those Ephesians. That whole town had gathered together and cried out for two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. That's how dark they were. But they were saved. By the power of the Holy Ghost. And the Apostle Paul taught them and they believed the gospel. And he said, ye were sometimes darkness. Now ye are light in the Lord. The Lord had shined in their hearts. It's as big of a deal as in the creation when he said, let there be light. And there was light. 2 Corinthians 4 says it is the same kind of a deal. The same kind of a creative work. To say, let there be light in a human heart. The light flooded into the hearts 
of the Ephesian saints, the children of God that were in Ephesus. Ye were sometimes darkness. Now ye are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We're a secret society of the children of God on earth called the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He's given us a written revelation of all that he has done, is, and shall do for us. And all that we can do for him. Let's walk as children of light by loving this book of light. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. That's Jesus Christ. We live in a dark place, but we have a book of light. They can't see anything in it, but we can see everything in it. Everything about the Lord Jesus Christ and our salvation. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.